0: Welcome to the Church on a Hill podcast. This is Pastor Corey Lahery. And the Church on a Hill podcast is a ministry of Palouse Federated Church in Palouse, Washington. We are glad you joined us for this podcast, and we hope that that this will bless you. What absolutely beautiful, beautiful words, I think, especially on this day. I am his and he is mine. We are delighted to have Hudson Brandle back with us. Hudson is with Impact Campus Ministries. And if you got your bulletin in there, will be some more information about Impact Camus, Campus Ministries. But I know Hudson, you'll tell us a little bit more. And we're delighted to have you with us again.
1: It'll be a little different this time because the boss is watching, so let's see if there's ever a time three, Or is he? I scared him already. Look at that. I'm free. All right. Shackles are off. Um, first of all, I just want to let everyone know I wrote my sermon for today before I really knew about Everything that happened that really impacts this church this week, so it's not necessarily customized to that, but I want to issue my condolences Um, But one thing that does overlap for those of you that maybe saw the scripture i'm sharing with ahead of time What we've got today Is a story that really is all about legacy and it's been Just in a few minutes you know, I've heard people talk from the stage already this morning. I've heard so much about John and what a great legacy he's leaving behind and how beloved he was. Now, this story's not going to go in the same direction, but it just goes to show, you know, how much your actions will actually reflect a legacy. And just a few things can actually change what that legacy looks like. So that's what we're going to dive into today. Now, I was here just a little over a month ago. I was really excited to bring you a passage um, from everyone's favorite book of Numbers. And I I really like that. I like to dig into the stuff that gets neglected a lot. I don't get to preach very often, so I can just be weird and I can dig into the odd stuff and it doesn't have to sidetrack you from going through the passages that are closer to most people's hearts. Um, This book's really easy to overlook, and... I don't think in my entire lifetime I've heard a single sermon out of the book of Numbers that wasn't about a chunk of the story I'm going to kind of just skip and run right past. Now, last time I was here, I talked to you about challenging scripture, asking questions of it and how important it is to wrestle and struggle and go through that and and not just assume that it's telling you the easiest thing you can draw from it. I think that's really important and I didn't prepare a ton to talk about my ministry, but that's really at the cornerstone of what I do with impact because college students have a lot of questions and a lot of things that they aren't going to take on faith and they want to walk through that and they want to ask those questions and they want someone to help scripture make sense to them, not just here, you know, a platform that's been laid out and accepted by people for centuries that don't live in the modern world. Those answers can be the same, but they may need to find them a very different way. So as um, Robin shared earlier, there's a little packet or a sheet that was in everyone's packet when they came in today. If you want to find out more about Impact, websites on there, you can find out. Um, I'm just going to give the quick pitch because I don't want to, but I do have to raise support to make it work. So if that's something you're interested in, you like the sermon or you want to hear more about my ministry and that's something that's on your heart, you can find details on that there. But that aside, that's just kind of a foundation for what I'm going to preach about today because I take that into everything I do. I like to challenge things and I want you to look at scripture a different way and I'm really excited to approach that today. One thing I'll do before I get started, I always take a lot of time to set the floor. And here's the reason why. I was talking to a friend down in Moscow earlier this week and we're both kind of movie nuts. We really really like to critique and watch a lot of films and these high falutin, uppity-class films and talk about why they're great and why they're not. And he was talking to me about this new film, Oppenheimer. And he was critiquing it because they shot it on this 30-millimeter film. And he says, I understand why you do it, and it's great for the IMAX, and yet all these scenes were blurry. Like I could tell the camera wasn't quite in focus. And he was noticing things like that, and he always does. This guy's just a huge tech nerd. He's always about the film and the music and the audio. And I really don't care that much. And I told him, all of that's fine. But if you make a perfect movie from a visual standpoint, and everything is in the right frame and shot exactly how I would draw it up myself, and the story's meh, I cannot give you five stars. Because to me, story is king. And that's why preaching for me is a challenge. Because so many churches in my lifetime, and I think what's commonplace now, is you go through a chunk of scripture a little at a time, right? You work your way through a book. And every sermon you might be focused in on 10 verses or less, right? That doesn't do the story justice, and I don't want to sit here and read out loud three chapters of Numbers to you. Because story is so important, but the ones we're going to focus in on, they don't get us anywhere without the two chapters before. So I'm just going to kind of give you a quick brush over on all of that. I'm going to be preaching primarily today out of Numbers chapter 24... And we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25. But that's the conclusion of the Balaam story that's spread across these last couple of chapters. Now, I mentioned I've only heard one number sermon my whole life, and it's on one thing. And it's on Balaam, but what part? You guys probably have heard the same set of sermons. Where do you hear the Balaam story settle? The donkey. I should recap for those who weren't here last time. I like to be interrupted. Ask questions, jump in. I don't ask rhetorical questions. I like to interact with the sermon. Yeah, the donkey. But the donkey and the story of Balaam, that's act one. If we're going to keep rolling with this film narrative. I'm jumping ahead of that. I assume you're all familiar with the story. But we'll just give a really quick recap here. Now... When it comes to this part of the story, what happens with Balaam and the donkey? The donkey, sees an angel. donkey sees an angel and. With sword. Right, with a sword. And Balaam's riding the donkey, right? The donkey's not letting him cross the angel because the donkey knows that angel's going to kill us and I don't want to die. Where's Balaam going? What's the whole point of him being on the donkey? A king of a Moabitess clan has come to him and said, hey, Israel's coming, and they're laying waste to everyone, and we know we're next. Can you come cast a curse on them? Okay, that's really what he's wanting to do. Now, the interesting thing about this talking donkey, we talk about it like it's the whole story, but there's some very peculiar questions that I have about that entire interaction, because... We talk about the donkey on the road, but before that, this king sends a handful of people to Balaam saying, hey, can you come and curse Israel for me? And he says, you know, I can really only use the words that God puts in my mouth. So I'm going to go ahead and turn that invitation down. He says, no, thank you. And then they come again. And the second time, he doesn't give them a quick answer. And he prays and he asks God what he should do. And God says, just go with him. And then he hits the road with the donkey, and then the angel's there to kill him. But he's doing what God told him to do. Now, that's interesting, and that's a question I'd like you to ask. And I like to give you challenges to take home. I'm not going to deal with any of that today. But that's how the story starts, okay? Now, Balaam... Balak is the name of this king of Moab as I mentioned he's been watching as Israel's just been wiping out city after city after city on the way to his kingdom he reads the map he knows his empire's next so he seeks this holy man to bring him some supernatural weapons into the fight right curses he can clearly see going sword for sword with Israel is not working for any of these nations in front of him so losing strategy So, after this whole donkey ordeal, Balaam arrives at the cursing grounds. Balak's really excited. He's got his Elders of Midian jersey on. Um, His face is painted the team colors. He's got his big foam finger, right? Moab number one. Cursing season is here. Balak is excited. It's going to be a great year. They're going to win the championship. Of course, his enthusiasm is tempered pretty quickly because Balaam arrives at these cursing grounds and he's dressed neutral got a classy robe on and a headdress. His donkey doesn't have the little flags on the side that people put in their windows now, right? He knows he has them. Balak knows he has them, and he didn't put them on. He's upset. There's honestly not a single speck of the famed Moab purple colors anywhere. He's just wearing tan and gray. What is this? Where's your team spirit? Balaam's not bringing an agenda of cursing Israel. See, his answer really hasn't changed from the first time... Balak's invoice came to him and said, come do some cursing. Sure, God told him to go, but he's still only going to put the words that God gives him out there. He's not making any promises about what that's going to look like for Balak. He's very clear about that. He tells Balak, I can only speak the word God gives me. So unless God says to curse Israel, Balak's not going to like cursing season this year. Now, sure enough, he doesn't. So after the first message of Balaam, and this is where we're going to start speed running through chapter 23, uh, Balak doesn't curse Israel at all. He actually gives it a blessing. He's done the exact opposite of what Balak has asked him to do. Now after the second, he uh, Balak starts asking Balaam, "Can you please just be silent? Can we just..." Can we say nothing more? How about, how about that? That's our compromise. I know you're not going to curse him. Just zip it. No more blessings. They have enough advantage already. And then after the third message that Balaam gives, Balak's, quote, anger burns against Balaam. He is mad. Balaam is doing nothing but blessing Israel. This is going, ter- this is like self-sabotage. You can watch these great, there's a great sports documentary out there. About I can't even remember what college it's for. I forgot it. But there's this college basketball player who gets caught intentionally turning the ball over when his team has a lead because a bookies paid him off to make sure that the spread gets covered, right? That they don't win by more than 10. So he's in there late in the game, and he's playing bad, but bad enough that they can still win but not get too far ahead. What it feels like here, looks like, hey, why, why are you do, you're tanking me? Why are you tanking me? You're my guy. You're, it's, he's blowing the game on purpose. Now, Balaam still has four messages left. And Balak doesn't speak or interrupt during any of them. He's despondent. He's quiet. He's gone full surrender cobra. Does anyone know what the surrender cobra is? Okay, so if you go to like a football game or if you watch one on TV... And one team, like, they're at home, and they're excited, and they're pumped, and they're getting destroyed. It's the third quarter, and the game's over, and the fan's doing this. That's the surrender cobra. So I want you to picture Balak doing that right now. He's gone full surrender cobra. He's quiet. The band has stopped playing. There is no optimism left. He's just wondering when Balaam's going to go home. (laughs) After seven messages from Balaam, he does go home. And here's what I find really interesting about this. And I'm going to hand a question off to you a bit. Because I don't like to just preach to you how I like to do ministry. We're going to practice. Why is Balaam considered a bad guy after this? Doesn't he bless Israel seven times and send their enemy's king home despondent? And yet, from here on after in Scripture, Balaam is only spoken of as a total and complete enemy of Israel. Seven chapters later, we meet Balaam. It's the only other time he shows up in narrative text in Scripture, when the Israelites kill him while invading his home. In Revelation, Balaam is described as having enticed the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, why is Balaam to blame for any of this? The only times he comes up again are his murder. And then he's talked about in prophets as this enemy. He's talked about in revelation of this enemy. Why? What did he do to earn his enemy status? That's a question I'm going to ask. And what I'd like you to do is maybe cluster in groups of five or six, get a few rows together. And I want you to try to find an answer to that between yourselves. And I'm just going to watch. And then we'll discuss some of your answers. Now, I'll still do the preacher thing, and I'll give you my interpretation at the end. But I'd like to hear what everyone else comes up with, because I'm not claiming to be an ultimate authority on this. But we want to put these challenging questions into practice. Let's put five minutes on the clock. All right, we're at five minutes. I'll give you a couple options. I am not opposed to giving you five more. But my guess is either of you either think you know it or think you won't get there. Will five more be helpful? Okay, let's move on. (laughs) All right. So, did anyone come up with anything? Don't be shy. Again, I like to be interrupted. Yes, we've got something. Okay. 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 So. So what you're kind of presuming, in my own words, um, is that as he goes on, he's starting to just speak his own words instead of God's, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? There's just an underlying sense of pride in it? Okay. Okay. How about insincerity? Insincerity? Yeah,
0: I mean, he's just doing his That's possible.
1: That's possible. Those are a couple of ways to look at it. Um, and I think that'd be, that'd be the natural way to look at it, too, right? If you stick just to the text that we're in, you kind of have to make character assumptions about him. And some of that could be there, could not be there. Um, I, I personally, when I read it, I, I don't like to try to understand the mind or uh, emotions that a, a character is going through. Those make sense. Like, those make sense. They could be there. But I don't know that. So, see, I tricked you all. I made you think that numbers was the text that we don't like to spend any time in that I was going to look at today. But what if I told you... I can get more obscure. That's where we're going next. Okay, so the answers, let me make sure I didn't skip any columns. I'm getting excited. Last time I was here, I had jet lag. I have energy today. I'm jumping around. I'm skipping my notes. Let's see what we've got here. Nah, I don't need that story. Yeah, let's just go ahead and jump over. Here's where I think we're going to find our answers. And you know, before we get there, maybe I should actually read the passages that we're jumping into. So I'm going to take a second. Let's just read through these sixth and seventh messages that I'm talking about. Picking up here, Numbers 24, 21. Then he saw the Kenites and spoke his message. Your dwelling is secured. Your nest is set in a rock. Yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. Then he spoke his message. Alas, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Cyprus. They will be subdued, Asher and Eber, but they too will come to ruin. Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. All right, so that's what we're looking at. Now, to find the answer about what he's done wrong here, the one that I would sit on, let's go to something that you've probably read less than numbers. Genesis. Chapter 10. Who loves a good genealogy? Hmm. Doesn't sound like very much of us. So uh, go ahead and turn there with me. You can send me your looks of scorn um, as I've directed this sermon to our table of nations. Along genealogies of everyone's favorite names like Havilah and Shiba. Where are we in scripture when we encounter this specific genealogy? Does anyone know? Take a quick peek. We're just at the end of Noah's story. We've gotten to the end of our flood. So when we say the table of nations, that phrase is not in the text, but we call it that for a specific reason. Because narratively in our story, there's one family left on earth, right? So a genealogy from here, it's the same as a genealogy from Adam. Everything flows downward from one guy. We're looking at the history of the world. Now, this ties really importantly to this uh, Balaam story. So our flood just ended, and Noah's got three sons, right? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, again, this is for everyone on earth. Everyone's going to come from one of those three kids. These names are particularly of interest because they do relate to the last two messages from Balaam. So, who are the Kenites? Does anyone know the answer to that question? I should ask questions that you guys want to engage with. I'm sorry. I have, I've not plotted this well. I did better with this last time. Now, they're not Moabites or Israelites, so I'll give you that spoiler. They don't seem to be in any way related to the other characters in the story of Balaam that we've encountered or what the entire narrative looks to be. Oh, we got the graph up already. Spoilers. That's okay. So the Kenites are descendants of Canaan. Now... That by itself is information. It may not be interesting information or helpful information, but it is a piece of information. What's interesting is that he starts with the son of Canaan, because at the end of Noah's story, we conclude with a curse that Noah places on Canaan. And the reasoning for that is super interesting, and you should ask a million questions about it, and you should take that home along with your Balaam questions from earlier, because we're not going to get into that today. But what's interesting is that essentially what happens is Noah's cursing Canaan because he's the oldest son of Ham. And what he's doing is he's cursing essentially the lineage of Ham by ignoring him completely. Writing him out and cursing his firstborn that carries his line forward. It's interesting because Noah has three sons but in a way the narrative says it's like three and a half. Canaan almost counts because he's replacing Ham with him. Now, We've got that so far, but we're going to pick up three more names in that seventh message that also feel relevant to the story. First one is Cyprus. Now, that's not a very good translation. My NIV says Cyprus. Does anyone else's translation have a different word there? Do you want me to read that specific verse again so you know where I'm leaning to? It's at the end of the first line in verse 24. Ships will come from the shores of Cyprus. Kidom, You have Kidom. Fantastic. That's a much better translation. Cyprus is an easy touch point that a modern translator is going to use because we know where Kidom was and we know where Cyprus is. It's still on our map today, right? What they're trying to clarify to us is this sense of location it's referring to, but it's not the Hebrew word used there. So, Kittim or Chittim, there's two different ways you could pronounce it or see it translated into English. These are descendants of Javan, from the line of Japheth. So, I've got it up there for you. So, we're on a new branch from Noah, right? Now, one thing I want to point out when you're looking at this genealogy, and I'm sorry if this is dull, don't close your eyes over, we will get somewhere. But, what's interesting about it is Keep in mind, I know this is a loaded word that we don't like very much today, but patriarchy, right? Everyone's an offspring of two people. But when you write a genealogy in the ancient world, it's of one. There's a reason when you read this, they are not giving you the name of women. If you are the son of that man, then that is the line. You're a direct descendant. So everything has a linear path that follows. They don't intermingle. You just come down in a genealogy from your father. That's why this is important. So we've got the line of Japheth right there. What's the next new name that we find in that passage that stands out? Very next line. They will subdue. There's two two more names there that seem unrelated. What do your translations say? Because these might vary too. Asher and Eber. Does anyone have different names for those? No. Asher. So this is what's strange to me. Because they translated Kittim, into something modern that we know. But they didn't do the same thing for Asher in these translations. Asher is Assyria. And that's a name I bet you're all a lot more familiar with. Now, Assyria, they're on the chart up there. Or so is Asher. And where is Asher at? Under Ham, right? Ham directly. So we've written off the Canaan generation. He's Cush's brother. So if we go ahead and assume Cain's written off and he's cursed, then the next son down, Asher. That's the firstborn of the second son. So we've got a second line of Ham there. Now, these sixth and seventh messages, I should probably make sure we realize this. Are these blessings? No, the first five are all blessings on Israel. But these last two, they're curses to seemingly unrelated people. Now, I bet you can guess where we're going with this third name of Eber. Where are we going with Eber? Where is he going to be? The third line, right? So in message six, we get this, uh, maybe it's its own separate line, Canaan. And then we've got Asher, Eber, Javog from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay? That's interesting because what we've done here is we've cursed the forefathers of the entire world. The entire world, okay? Everybody. And even if you want to write all that off and say, that seems like a stretch, well, let's just follow Eber. He's a direct descendant of who? Direct, uh, de- uh, sorry, not descendant. He he's, leads to Abraham, which is going to take us to the entire Moabite and Israelite tribe, Okay? Are we starting to see potentially why Balaam's not considered an ally of Israel at the end of the story? You don't get there unless you go play with genealogies. And I know that's not fun, and it's complicated, and it takes time. But it completely changes the text, right? Because everyone who writes Revelation and who writes these prophets, they have that in mind. Because if we only read the Numbers story with none of this context, Balaam does Israel a solid... Like, they should be inviting him to join the clan when they invade Moab. But this completely changes things. In a roundabout way, yeah, Balaam absolutely does curse Israel, along with everybody else. Everybody's cursed. Now, Balaam said he's not going to curse Israel unless God puts it in his mouth. Did he break those rules? Eh. I mean, so I'll go with another sports analogy. Sorry if any of you don't care. They had an NBA uh, rule change the last couple of years because one thing that became common, when you're guarding an NBA, you know, you're often up front. You've got your arms out, and you're trying to get in people's way. But everyone likes to shoot a three-pointer now. So what happens is if you're out beyond the three-point line, and you're guarding like this, The players will intentionally swing through your arm and then act like they were taking a shot, even though no one shoots from that position. And they get three free throws when, in fact, it's just a common foul. You should just be taking the ball in from out of bounds again. I think Balaam really does the swing through here, right? That's what he's going for. He's trying to cheat. He's following the rules, but he's not obeying the spirit of the rule. He's not cursing Israel, but he's making sure that Israel is cursed. Does that make sense? If they're all cursed, well, maybe Balak and Moab come out okay. Because at least now there's not this blessing that's one side versus the other. Now they can actually just fight with weapons. Maybe the supernatural forces have been neutralized and maybe the best army wins. It's his best bet. He can't bless Balak directly, and he can't curse Israel directly. Balak also stops interrupting, and after the seventh message, he just goes home silent. He seems as close to satisfied as he's going to get. Balak knows what's going on here. When everyone's cursed, he's fine. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is, this will sound a little wonky, so... Does the subject of numerology ever come up in this church here? Does this word sound wonky to you? Numerology. So, when you read in scripture, ancient writings, numbers meant specific things. The presence of the number seven means something specifically, right? It's the perfect, it's the set apart, it's this holy number. If Balak gives seven messages and stops at seven messages, it's because the seventh one. Is the point of the story he's getting at? That's the important one. And in the seventh one, that's where he curses everybody. That is Balaam's real goal here. And he's accomplished it. So Balaam's legacy here is to prognosticate a world at war. There's bloodshed without exception. And when you're spending generation after generation at war trying to combat what feels like this mutually assured destruction, you seek advantages. Now, last time I was here, I think we also talked about just this little hint about what polytheism at the time looked like. Did we talk about that? Maybe we didn't. So, I'll give you a quick overview. You guys are all familiar with the idea of polytheism, you know, in the ancient world specifically, yes? Yes, okay. So, there's a lot of gods, and tribes worship all these different gods. Now, It's not that they believe necessarily that their God is more powerful than any other gods. That's not necessarily how it works, and that's a common misconception. All of their gods, they believe, have a natural barrier, and that's geographic. Right? Okay, so they're wandering, and Moab says, you know, we're worshiping Baal, and he's a very powerful God, and no one can touch us because he reigns supreme in Moab. So they don't necessarily believe he's powerful everywhere. doesn't help them when they're going out and they're conquering, but they're going to run into these natural limitations and these windows where this god they've run into is more powerful than the god you're traveling with. Does that make sense? Okay. That's important because when you hit a new region and maybe your confidence wavers, then you start trying to woo some regional gods. Like, for instance, engaging in the practice of shrine prostitution. That comes up in Revelation, right? Balaam lured them into sexual immorality. Folks, that's what happens in Numbers chapter 25. It's the very next story. We've got an Israelite wandering into his tent with a Moabite prostitute. It's exactly where we go. And that's why they're drawing the line back. says, hey, they're wooing the gods. This is the curse in action right away. You also might start spending time with your uh, new region's idols, maybe eating food with them, sharing in food sacrifices. That's the other thing that Revelation points out. These are things that you do to court the power of the God in the area you're going into because you expect to be at war. Not to walk in, not to just watch the walls crumble like you did at Jericho. You expect a fight where you've got to court your own advantages. It's Balaam's curse in action. Now, uh, can you tell I'm not a pro? That's pretty much what I have on Balaam. So we're going to wrap it up a little different. So the other thing I think I talked about last time, and I try to bring this into everything I teach, is the idea of, okay, what does Jesus do with this? Jesus' role in his culture was as a rabbi, and we talked about what that means, right? Rabbi, it's not just a teacher like we say it now. The rabbi had a specific job, which was to learn the text and interpret the text and teach other people how to interpret the text the same way that the rabbi does. So he's working with that, and he wants everyone to understand his teaching. A lot more confidence that I come up here with, right? I come up and say, here's how I interpret it, and I'm not telling you this is the right answer. It's what I know what to do with it. The rabbi says, this is the right answer. This is how you walk out the text. And people would choose what rabbis to follow, if they were invited to, based on if they thought the rabbi's interpretations were on course. Now, in our Gospels, we find that often, we find teachings that go back and cover Old Testament stories in really unique ways. So what I want to do now is we're going to turn into the gospel of Luke and we're going to see not necessarily an explicit reference to this story, but you're going to find some parallels here. So I want to go to Luke chapter 19 and we're going to be in verses 28 through 44. this is a story, again, I imagine most of us are very familiar with. But I'm going to go ahead and just read those verses now. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead. Going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you... What are you untying? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... So we have Jesus coming to town for Passover. And there's this raucous scene unfolding. Uh, probably been to like a Palm Sunday service at some point, And you've seen versions of this, right? There's palm branches swaying. There's this massive crowd celebrating his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. These people have in mind that Jesus is the Messiah. He's kind of kept that close to the vest for a lot of his ministry up to this point. But the secret's out. And what do they want from a Messiah? What are the people of the time looking for? We have this idea that's generally understood among followers of Christ now what that means, but I don't think it was the same for them. Freedom from Rome. That's exactly right. Okay? So they're a puppet nation at this point. They send taxes to Rome. They have soldiers that tell them what they can and cannot do. The people were looking for an ultimate warrior to liberate them. And with the 2020 hindsight on our side, I think most followers of Jesus just have this idea in mind, the Messiah's great blessing is the sacrifice of himself for the forgiveness of sins. Liberation from sin and death. That is not what they were looking at. They wanted liberation from the empire that was cracking the whip. Egypt 2.0, right? 4.0. We had Assyria and Babylon 5.0. Persia in the middle. Egypt gets around. <laughs> The Israel of the day was incredibly religiously devout. Incredibly. Like when Jesus is having all of his rants and raves and lectures and corrections to the Pharisees, there's a pretty similar point on all of it. Guys, the law is good. Why are you adding so much to it? You've made it so burdensome. I can't heal a guy on the Sabbath. I can't eat on the Sabbath. Like what are you doing? They cared very much about Senate devotion. That's not the freedom they were looking for. I... Nope, there it is. They wanted to be liberated from Rome. And I've said it again and again and again, but we have to say it again, because to them, that's all the Messiah was. It was the soldier that brought them the freedom to just keep living the life they already wanted to on their own. Fatigued by the word of Balaam's message of mutually assured destruction, that salvation that they were looking for was unilateral bloodshed, not shared bloodshed with their enemies. An overthrowing of Rome and an empire in Jerusalem in which they could sit at the head. And Jesus is distraught by that. Now, I know in Luke it says cult, but if we look at our other Gospels, there's a different word he uses for an animal that he rides into town. What is it? It's a donkey. Jesus rides a donkey into Rome. And if you go into Jerusalem, you'll see there's actually this hill that we would assume where he was riding into the temple. or uh, Yeah, takes this colt down to the temple. It's the same road that Caesar would come into town if he paid a visit from. And he'd have this giant legion that would escort him in, all armored up, all their swords There'd be trumpets blaring. Everyone would make a big show and tell of, hey, the real warrior's here. And Jesus rides in on a donkey with nothing. Probably 12 dudes in ragged robes walking behind him. And they're swaying palm branches. No swords, no trumpets, just a lot of people screaming and shouting, be our warrior, be our warrior. And he could not be displaying anything less like a warrior. He rides the town on a donkey with no delays. He expresses remorse that the Balaam ballad of war still seems to be the symphony on his people's lips. We've got an image here for you of the fruit of that particular labor. if you want to put that up, you've got it there. This is a picture of the western wall in Jerusalem. It's still there. You can see a lot of people hanging out. People come and pray against this wall, and they staple prayers to the wall every day. This wall is really significant, and not in the modern way. It's really, really significant in the modern way, but that's not where I'm going with it. Because what you're looking at is the only part of that temple Jesus rode his donkey to that's still standing. And as he's weeping at the way people are reacting to him, and what he sees that everyone wants their Messiah to be, He tells about the destruction that's going to come. That this pursuit of a Messiah of war doesn't lead to anything. That's what remains. Because in 70 AD, after the Zealots finally tried to create that revolution on their own, um, Zealots were a violent religious insurgent group. Um, I think they're talked about, I don't know how they're talked about now. I've heard it mentioned a hundred different ways in several different churches. They were... A League of Assassins. Their goal was kill as many Romans as he can. Eventually, we'll find freedom. They were trained as warriors. They followed the texts. They were incredibly devout to their Jewish faith. But they were going to take their freedom one way or the other. And they revolted against Rome, and there was a reckoning. The Second Temple's destroyed. The zealot compound where they tried to wait out the siege that took down all of Jerusalem ends with almost exactly what Jesus is quoting here. There's reports in history um, from Josephus that we have recorded of massive suicides. Females and children leaping to their death because they know that those walls are going to fall and what Rome has for them is worse than the quick death they're seeking on their own. Dashed against the rocks. The fruits of Balaam's seventh message are still running red as blood. Jesus had another way for people to be saved. He didn't have to beat his donkey to get to town to accomplish it. He didn't have to swing through the reach. There's no curses involved. But it does require self-lowering. It's not how can I fight and get what I want, right? The word I've heard for this is kenosis this inversion of how you seek the kingdom of God. You become lesser, not more. You humble yourself. You don't lift yourself up. You turn the other cheek. Don't cut off the ear with the sword. Jesus here is speaking against the words of Balaam. And we are lucky enough to have the rest of Scripture that shows how he undoes the curse that Balaam put on the whole world. What I invite you to do today is think about How you can wrestle through and take that message to heart. Because fighting is as normal a human reaction as you could ever come by. But Jesus shows us another way. Choose that way. Balaam had it wrong. Don't die in an invasion. Those that follow Balaam tend to end up that way. I know this is not necessarily the conclusion that I would have liked for a sermon on today. But I hope you all have a blessed afternoon and that you found some challenges to wrestle with from my words today. Thanks for having me.
0: Hello, friends. I truly pray that this message blessed you. And if you want to find out more about our ministries or listen to other messages or videos of our worship services, you can check us out at PalouseChurch.org or search for Palouse Church on YouTube or check us out on Facebook, or we are on uh, the Bible app. There's different ways to find us. You can always email me, Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at PalouseChurch.org, to connect with me or to send me a prayer request. We really appreciate you connecting with us in this way, and may God bless your day.